Welcome back to the Middle of Culture. I'm one of your hosts, Eden. And I'm your other host, Peter. Hey, Peter. How you been? What you been up to lately? Um, you know, working. Fair. Being a parent. And, uh, you know, listening to some music still. I, uh, I don't remember what it was. Well, so, uh, you know, Meshuggah's album, Obzen, and this is going to make me feel really old, uh, it they released recently the 15th anniversary remastered a version of that album. And last night, I think I started listening to it. Hobson's uh, uh, 15 years old. I, I know. Did you just age a little bit hearing that? Did it make oh you feel a little God. crinky in your joints and kind of like you were going to turn to dust? Because when I saw that, I thought, no, 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 no. Hobson's not. Obzen is a fairly recent album of theirs. Uh, yeah, no, it's 15 years old. That's just what I was going to say. Obzen's a new mm-hmm. one. Yeah, no. I, when I think of old Meshuga albums, I think of Destroy, Erase, Improve. I don't think of Obzen. Obzen's old. Uh-huh. No, that is because Destroy, Erase, Improve is like 28 years old now. It came out in 1995. Oh my god, I'm so old. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, now that I've made us both feel our age and perhaps beyond, I just want to say that Obzen is a fucking fantastic album. And I don't care how how overplayed the song Bleed is, that song rules. It is incredible. Oh yeah. No, Obzen is an extremely good uh Meshuga album. It's one of my favorites of theirs, I would say. Oh yeah. No. It it was so I I've been listening to that, still been listening to a little of the Neo Bliviscaris. Uh, a new album from the band Sermon dropped a couple weeks ago. Uh, and it is excellent. Uh very very good. Uh, again, I won't be surprised if it's in my top 10 at the end of the year, along with the, uh, the Neo Bliviscaris album. And then I just want to report, I don't remember if I ever mentioned this on the pod, but, uh, in my little D and D group, one of the many tasks set before us, uh, was to deal with the ancient black dragon Villathrax, who for centuries, had been enslaving and persecuting the dwarves of Kundrakar in this uh, land in which we our campaign is set. And one of our characters, uh, one of our, our the, the members of the group, was a dwarf from Kundrakar. And at his behest, we went to Kundrakar and we tracked down the ancient black dragon. Now, those of you who know about D&D will think this sounds insane. And those of us, those of you who don't will also think this sounds insane because it kind of is. But hey, we're a group of level eight characters fighting an ancient black dragon in its level lair. eight. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Needless to say, we defeated that bitch and only lost two of our party. So our cleric and our poor dwarf were taken under the water and then got uh, a, a bite attack that involved the dragon rolling a natural 20. And our DM had already previously said, if the dragon rolls a natural 20 with its bite attack, you're dead. The dragon eats you. 
And so we went down after we defeated the dragon to hurry and revive our two friends and uh, found only their legs. The rest of them were gone. But hey, we defeated an ancient black dragon. And he was a slaver. Oh, yeah. So we're talking, this was the D&D Haitian Revolution here because you were led by your your Toussaint Louverture dwarf to go and kill this slaver, an amazing slave revolt. Yep. And that is At level eight. At level eight. You You know? Good for you all. It was actually giving me quite a bit of stress for the weeks leading up to the final confrontation with the dragon. And I was actually quite relieved when it was all over. That was where I knew that perhaps I needed to reevaluate some things in my life where I was like physically feeling sick when I started thinking (laughs) about the stress of going and playing Dungeons and Dragons and fighting this black dragon. And then it came to me that because I'd gotten sick and a number of other things, I'd kind of gotten lazy with working out. And so this week I've done much better at making sure I get up early and exercise every morning. And hey, guess what? Even after just four days of that, I feel a little less like I want to murder the hell out of everyone around me. So it's a good thing. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that for your <laughs> How have you been doing, Eden? Also doing pretty good. Um, annoyed at the weather. Um, yes. For those of you who may not know, uh, our father had his 70th birthday a couple of weeks ago. And my partner and I were going to fly out to be there on his birthday morning to surprise him at a big family brunch that Peter and I had put together. Um, And then the nastiest tornadoes came and kept us from being able to leave because we couldn't, we literally could, there was no way for us to get to the airport safely. And there's no world where that airplane was taken off on time. So then I was like, can I change the flights? And they're like, we could get you out Sunday. And I was like, that's two days later than I needed to be leaving. So that's not going to work. So we did not, we unfortunately did not get to come out and see you all. It's kind of a bummer. But, uh, it was, it was, we missed seeing you, but we were glad you were safe. So, so hate tornadoes. Uh, we were safe. Our house was fine yet, yet again, our neighborhood somehow our, our city really this time, but often it's our neighborhood unscathed in the derecho back in 2020, nothing happened to our house, even though a bunch of other, you know, huge trees in the neighborhood fell and did a lot of damage on people's houses. We lost a couple branches. We were fine. And with this last tornado, like it touched, there was three tornadoes that touched down in our County, one right to the West of us in the city of Coralville, which destroyed about 60 houses. Um, there was one right to the North of us in the city of Solon, which did a a number on its downtown, and there was one right to the south of us in Hills. Um, but we we were fine. We were fine. We sat in our basement. The uh, tornado sirens went for an hour straight, which that has never happened in all the years that I've lived here. It has never just gone straight for an hour. Wow. And That's crazy. It was wild. The sky was like a sickly green, and you could just feel like the weather was wrong and you could just feel it. And it was extremely strange. Very, very Hmm. strange. Um, We were glad that we had a basement. Our neighbors came over and just hung out in our basement with our barky dogs um, and let them sit in their laps while the dogs kind of were on edge because they don't like the sound of the, uh, the tornado warnings any more than I do. 
Um, but we all survived. We were great. It just meant that we weren't able to uh, travel, which was a bummer. Yeah. Like but I say, it was, in terms, it was sad not seeing you, but uh, yeah, you know, we're glad you're safe. It is what it is. Um, in terms of stuff I've been doing, I've mostly just been playing games I already play on the reg. I haven't really played anything new. I've been playing Final Fantasy XIV. I've been playing Star Wars The Old Republic. I don't think I've ever even mentioned that I, on the reg, still deep into star- dip into Star Wars The Old Republic. And the newest, like, galactic season started a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, it's one of those games where I log in and play for 15, 20 minutes in the morning and get some conquest points and unlock some new companions and get some new gear and then i don't think about it again until the next day it's not like i'm invested really but obviously i am still invested i say i'm not invested in it like i don't play it nearly every morning still but i I still play star wars the old republic on the brag have you ever played that game i think i've started two characters but it has probably been a minimum of five years since the last time i ever tried it that's fair there's so it's I. It has a very soft or a very special place in my heart. I have a very big soft spot for it, but it's not that great of a game. And hmm. the expansions, especially, have been extremely facile. Like they had their big last year, their big tenth ten year anniversary expansion came out, and I just recently replayed that with a newish character I made. It took me about three hours to play the entirety of the new expansion and all of the patch content that's <laughs> wow. come out since then. That's not a lot. It's not a lot. And this was their big, like, they got a new studio to do one of their, like, super fancy CG trailers and all that stuff. So we were like, you know, people were like, oh, maybe they're actually going to go, like, go big with it. Because, like, they haven't had, like, a really big expansion since Knights of the Fallen Empire, which was, like four expansions ago because people didn't really like knights of a fallen or knights of the fallen empire or its follow-up knights of the eternal throne they really did not like that so they like cut it short it was supposed to be a trilogy they cut the second one in half and so they basically did one and a half instead of three of their planned trilogy of expansions and then everything that's come out since has just been like hey do you remember how we like blew up the spot about the fight between republics and imperials well we're back to that so welcome back to the status quo you love of the republic versus the empire and it's just like this is boring this is boring Hmm. idea and it's just kind of a shame because like the vanilla game is maybe the strongest mmo story you'll ever play in terms of a first like the base game of it like really the vanilla stories of star wars the old republic are miles better than final fantasy 14 a realm reborn which is the like the base game of final fantasy 14 miles sure. better everything's voiced there's eight different stories you can play with your eight different types of characters you got two different sith you got two different jedi you, you got a smuggler you got a republic trooper you got a bounty hunter you've got a an imperial agent so eight different stories fully voiced you know male or female protagonists love interests in the bioware style all this sort of stuff happening but everything since has felt so much smaller and so much less mm. consequential and it it makes it such a weaker overall mmo to recommend to someone like if someone was gonna if someone were to come to me and say i have 50 hours that i want to put into an mmo i'd say play star wars the old republic 
pick either I'd say pick one of the the four sensitive characters. Do you want to be a swashbuckling Jedi Knight? Great. Do you want to be a diplomat? Play a Jedi Consular. Do you want to be swashbuckling Sith, except not like Jedi Knight, except bad guy? Play the Sith Warrior. Do you want to play a cool Force Ghost Eater? Play a Sith Inquisitor. Play it for 50 hours. Get in, get out, enjoy your time. But like if someone was like, I want to dig in to an MMO and like get to know raids and like play the whole story and try to build a community and all that kind of stuff. I would say play final fantasy 14 in an instant because hmm. okay. as an overall experience, final fantasy 14 is miles ahead as a, as a full experience and as a totality of a story, it's way better. But again, if you were like, I got 50, 60 hours, I don't want to pay money, but I want to play a game. Great. It's free to play, play, one or two of those origins and have fun. And as soon as it says rise of the hut cartel, say nope. And then start a new character. What do you pay for in that? So it, there isn't a subscription. Um, it is free to play. Um, if you don't subscribe, you can play the entire base game. So all eight origin stories um, and the first two expansions are included free to play. Obviously, you don't get... They do things to try to make it annoying, basically, so mm-hmm. you'll want to subscribe. Because basically, with subscription, it's like 15 bucks a month or something. I still subscribe when I'm actively playing the game because the cooldown on fast travel is non-existent as opposed to you have to wait six minutes before you can fast travel again if you are a free-to-play player. Uh, you get XP a lot faster, so you don't have to do as much uh. like side quests or things like that if i want to stay on level if you're subscribed you basically just have to do the main story and you're usually good to go whereas if you're free to play you'll probably have to go do some side missions or some heroics to try to get some xp from time to time um you can have more money like you can only have a million bucks um if you are a free to play player um but obviously if you're a subscriber you can have up to four billion dollars on your character um wow which the inflation in that game is absurd at this point. Like the the in-game like market board, the Galactic Trade Network, has a max of a billion for any uh transaction. So people don't even do transactions in anymore. They just do it in general chat on the fleet and they're like, hey, I'm willing to sell this armor set for two point six billion dollars. <laughs> and that, and that's what people that's how people pay for like people pay that. I don't have that much because when I had, I used to have a lot of money in this game at one point, like five years ago, but then I stopped playing for three or four years and now I'm, I got like a hundred million bucks between all of my characters. Whereas like a lot of these people will have like hundreds of billions in their like shared storage between all their characters. And it's just like, what do you, why, why do you, why do you do? Because, because that's the way economies in video games and the world work if you have a an unregulated economy inflation runs rampant mm-hmm. but anyway that's star wars the old republic i think it's fun most of the time and if anyone Maybe ever I'll wants to play one of these days if anyone's like hey i would like to play star wars the old republic let me know because i'll hop on a voice call with you and just like walk you through and have fun and like party up with you so that i can kill things much faster cool it's a fun game. Um, last thing I'll shout out is I have been reading this novel, which you're going to hear this title and you're going to be like, that sounds like the most boring thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, but it's a very cool book that 
At one point, I was like, "We should. I should read. The, we should read this for the podcast." But then I was like, "I think this is great, but I don't think Peter will like it." <laughs> and it is a book. <laughs> it is a novel entitled "Everything for Everyone: An Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072." And okay. the premise. The premise of this book is that by the middle of the 21st century, America has basically fallen apart. And in the 2050s, insurrection has basically torn New York City apart. And this book is basically written like a post, you know, a postscript oral history of talking to the people who were involved in setting up the New York Commune during those two decades from 2052 to 2072, who basically create a a, a, a like anti-fascist anarchist commune society in the ashes of the most hyper-capitalist country on their city on the planet. Um, it's very cool. It's very, very cool. Um, again, I, I think it's just an incredible piece of fiction and, and, and in such an interesting way to present it because every single chapter is an interview with a couple of these researchers. Um, and it's just done like transcripts, like oral history style. So, you know, this chapter will be called, you know, chapter five is called Quin Liu on making refuge from, uh, Hangzhou to Flushing. And it is, an interview between Iman Abelhadi, who's one of the researchers, who's one of the main characters, basically, of the book, talking to this person, Quinn Liu, and asking them questions about what was your life like? How did you come to New York? How did you participate in what happened in the society that was built here in New York? Um, and that is kind of the structure of, of the whole book, is this, this series of interviews, um, which, again, it sounds pretty dry and... To be fair, it is it is somewhat dry, but it's also so interesting in the way that it's presented as if it were this historical document, as if it were an actual historical artifact, um, and imagines such a radically different world than what I think it's hard for those of us who are, you know, trapped by the capitalist society in which we live it's hard for us to imagine the type of world that this book posits um and so i just i find i find it really affecting and so like i say i was for a while i was like maybe we should read this for the podcast i'm not gonna make you read this for the podcast <laughs> i don't think i don't think you I would enjoy that. it but i think it's something really really special um so if you are into imagined better futures dear listener pick it up everything for everyone an oral history of the new york commune 2052 to 2072 by m e o'brien and iman Hadi, which are actually the people who are like the main the main interviewers they act as if they are themselves but you know 50 years in the future doing these interviews hmm cool it's very cool the only other one thing I did want to mention is, you know, when Diablo 4 had its uh, beta weekend, uh, I went ahead and I jumped in with that, played a couple, I don't know, like 30 minutes or so, and went, yep, it's Diablo, and I like Diablo. And so then after that weekend was over, I got back into Diablo 3, have never leveled a monk up to level 70. I, I've done a barbarian a crusader, multiple demon hunters, multiple sorcerers. Uh, well, that's because demon hunter is the most fun to play. 
No, Necromancer's the best, man. Necromancer. I like I like Demon Hunter. I just like Demon Hunter's so easy. It's just like, yo, let me just turn on the like Gatling gun uh, uh the rapid fire crossbows and it's just yep. like it melts. Everything melts. Yep. Uh, I, I love the disintegrate ability on the sorcerer, which also kind of puts the sorcerer in that realm. But I finally decided I wanted to see what happened to a monk. So I created a seasonal monk, but the seasonal monk I created only after I had already created a seasonal demon hunter who I got to level 70. Now there's a thing going on in the current season where there is an altar, an altar at which you can sacrifice predominantly crafting resources, but it looks like things get more and more expensive the further you go. The second level of the altar, things you can unlock, uh, one of the options was that no items have a level requirement. And since these are both seasonal Yo. heroes, they're sharing money, they're sharing crafting resources. And so I created a level one monk and then went and crafted at my level 12 blacksmith uh, two uh, unique, what normally would have been level 70 fist weapons. And then I put them on my level one monk. And then you murdered everything, I would guess. And then I one punched everything until I got to about level 55. And then it would be two punches. <laughs> and then I got to level 70 very, very quickly. And it I bet. was so much fun. She just was, I was way of a thousand of a hundred fisting, just like punching everything as I went. And she just was annihilating everything. And it made me smile. So, you know, Diablo three, it still is just, it's one of those games that's so comfortable, so easy to go back to. I don't have to think about it. I am not one of those people who is going to waste time and mental energy trying to farm for a specific piece of gear or whatever. I'm just someone who likes to go in, make it just hard enough that I can kind of just have fun and kill stuff and get stuff and kill stuff and get more stuff and then move on to a new character and do it with. And it still scratches that itch. And so that was actually a lot of fun. I enjoyed the monk who literally uh, punched her way to level 70 in about, gosh, probably three hours of playtime, maybe only two. It That's pretty cool. I it bet. That sounds fun. It was fun. Diablo three is yeah. one of those games that like, had a very um, hot and fast relationship with it, and I've not touched it since. I played it a hell of a lot, yeah. but you know, I go back to it about every yeah. I, I go back to about I don't know every year, eighteen months, whatever, uh, and just jump back in, and then I'll play it for a few weeks, and then kind of get that out of my system, uh, and then move on to something else. But it's it's an it's one that I keep installed all the time because I never know when I'm going to want to jump back in. Fair. That's, that's fair. It, I, you know, my, one of my coworkers is a big Diablo fan. We were, uh, none of my coworkers listen to this podcast, so I can say it here. Earlier today, we had a staff meeting, um, over zoom and you know, both of us were in that staff meeting, but we're not actually in that staff <laughs> because <laughs> we were joking about it over teams to each other. Cause what it was, was essentially, here's the team's expert come to show us about the like basics of teams and like, we use Microsoft Teams all day, every day. So, like, we know how Teams works. And then they <laughs> split us into 
breakout rooms and I had to like scramble and like turn over to my to my university laptop and like pretend like I had been paying attention the whole time because I was playing Star Wars The Old Republic and he was playing Diablo 3 the whole time because afterwards we were talking about it and we were like well that was boring he was like yeah I was just playing Diablo 3 the whole time and I was like ah good for you because he's also (laughs) extremely excited for Diablo 4 to come out we were joking that it's like one of his two like I will pay full price for his game this game passes that he's giving himself this calendar year nice yeah, I, I mean, I will admit I have pre-ordered Diablo 4. I tend to not pre-order many games, but Diablo 4 is just one of those where, you know, I mean, look, even with Diablo 3, they kind of goofed it up with the real money auction house at the beginning, but it didn't take very long for them to turn that thing around and, and really make Diablo 3, I think, a very good, uh, very solid game. And I'm I'm like, I don't know, whatever. Sure, Diablo 4, I'll enjoy playing it when it drops. So yeah, here you go. Sure. So, you know. I'll probably pick it up when it's on sale at some point because that is not one of my two that I'm giving myself a pass for to pay full <laughs> price for this calendar year. My fair. two are, I think I'm probably going to buy Jedi Survivor as soon as I get paid at the start yeah. of May because yeah, I really like Fallen Order and Survivor looks too. really good. There's battle droids in it this time, baby. Nice. Anytime there's droids, anytime there's droids on screen, I get excited. They're my favorite. Um, and then I will, of course, buy Final Fantasy 16 when it comes out because I'm a sucker and apparently I'm a huge Final Fantasy fan these days. I think you are. I think you have so, demonstrated that to be true. So so 16 will be getting purchased on day of. I'm not even... Jedi Survivor, I'm waiting until payday because the university is stupid and they only pay us once a month, which is a pain in the butt. Pay your people more often than this. It's dumb. Yeah, that is stupid. I hate getting only paid once a month, but whatever. But what that means is like when Jedi Survivor comes out on April 28th, it's like, well, I could buy it, but then I'm going to have like $50 left in my checking account. So I should probably wait until I get paid on the first. Um, but no, I, I'm playing Final Fantasy 16 on release day. Thank you very much. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, we have uh, chatted for a while here. Should we talk about our, should we move to the main event? Let's do it. Let's talk about this. Speaking of main events, let's talk about a big fight. (laughs) (laughs) So um, astute listeners might notice that uh, Peter and I swap off each uh, episode who's hosting and who's basically introducing the idea. And I, you know, hosted last episode where we talked about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And then after watching it, I had this bug in my brain that I just really wanted to do a series of three episodes watching a trilogy of movies. And Peter was kind enough to acquiesce and let me kind of guide us through a trilogy of movies here. So the next, this episode, the next two episodes are going to be about this trilogy of movies before we start talking about something else. Um, And I would like to say for the record that while you make it sound like I acquiesced this, as far as I am concerned was very much a favor that you were doing to me where I am exhausted and (laughs) am getting my ass completely handed to me by work and life in general. And Eden was very thoughtful to say, Hey, if you want a break from coming up with ideas for the next three weeks, I got something for us. And I was incredibly grateful for them and for that offer. So that was the way I viewed it. Lest anyone think that this was something that was pushed on me. No, this was a kind offer from you, which I very gladly said, yes, that would be wonderful. You got to take the credit when I give it. 
Uh, anyway. No, not on this one. I got to give this one right back because you did me a huge <laughs> favor. So, Well, um, this trilogy of films we're going to watch, um, anyone who knows me knows that I am a fan of large monsters in cinema. So this trilogy of films we are watching is the 1990s Gamera trilogy. Um, did, have you ever watched any of the Gamera movies? Are you familiar with Gamera as as a Daikaiju character at all, Peter? The word Gamera, which I would have said Gamera, so I'm glad to hear that it's Gamera. Uh, the word seemed to tickle some memory in my mind but I have no knowledge of why it might have tickled a memory in my mind. I do not believe I have ever seen any of these movies, nor that I was familiar in anything other than, yes, had you asked me what Gamera was, I would have said, isn't that a big monster thing? But that sounds like a monster. Sounds like a kaiju. That's fair. And he is. Uh, Gamera is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I even have Gamera's name tattooed on my arm because I just love Gamera. He's one of my top three favorite monsters, um, alongside Godzilla and Mothra, the other two names that are tattooed on my forearm. Um, I really like Gamera and I think that what makes Gamera interesting is that it is kind of a parallel series to the Godzilla series. Obviously, Godzilla's been around a lot longer, has had a lot more films in the series, because we're, between the Japanese and American releases, I think we're up to, like, 35 or 36 Godzilla movies at this point. Like, Holy cow. There have been a lot of Godzilla movies. There have only ever been 12 Gamera movies, um, but basically the idea behind Gamera is... Godzilla was really popular, and uh, this company, uh, Daiei, was like, we want to get in on this, and so they created their own monster. Um, unlike Godzilla, who's, of course, a large lizard, Gamera is a very big turtle man. He's a yes, big turtle. Yes, he is. He's so cool. Um, so there was a series of films. There were eight films that came out in what is uh, commonly called the Showa era. Um, they they map really uh, loosely onto the same kind of era that the Godzilla movies came out. And also it basically Japanese politics are, have been divided for hundreds and hundreds of years into what they're societally known as different eras and eras that have different names and Showa, the Showa era is basically post-war Japan to the seventies or eighties. So the original 15 Godzilla movies are all the Showa era Godzilla movies. So if you go, you know, there's that big box set. I think I've referenced on this podcast a time or two. That is a criterion collection box set of the first 15 Godzilla movies in the Showa era collection. Uh, there were eight films that were made, uh, Gamera movies that were made in the Showa era. Um, and then there is a second era called the Heishi era, which again maps onto that Japanese political era where there's, I want to say there's seven or eight, Godzilla movies in the Heishi era and there are these trilogy of movies from the Heishi era uh, that came out uh, from Gamera and what I think is really interesting is that it kind of bridges the gap between the Heishi era Godzilla movies and the millennium era Godzilla movies because while this trilogy of movies were coming out there were no Godzilla movies that came out Hmm. 
The last Godzilla movie of the Heishi era, Godzilla vs. Destroya, was 1995, which was the same year that the part, that the movie we're going to be talking about today, God's Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, came out. And then the end of this trilogy, Gamera, Revenge of Eris, comes out in 1999, the same year as Godzilla 2000. So I do think it's interesting that this just kind of slots in and fills kind of a gap in Daikaiju cinema that Godzilla was current was not currently using because Toho had made a contract and they couldn't really make one while the Roland Emmerich uh, American Godzilla movie was happening. So that's why there were no Japanese Godzilla movies during that time because Roland Emmerich was busy making his bad but dear to my heart 1998 Godzilla film. <laughs> um, but so Gamera is interesting in the ways that it kind of juxtaposes itself to what Godzilla does. Because, I, maybe we should talk about, before we get into the big things, we should talk about this film. Uh, before we, bef- Before I give a, a, um, a summary, because I've been talking a lot, you'd never seen a, Godzilla, or a Gamera movie, you, didn't, you weren't sure what Gamera was. What did you think nope. about this Gamera movie I made you watch? I don't know if I'll ever watch it again, but I freaking loved it. Go on. This movie is ridiculous to me as someone who does not watch many of these movies. Very little exposure to them for me. But this movie was silly. It was ridiculous, but it was funny. It was, uh, they were trying to have some, there was trying to be some social commentary and there was even some like, Eco, like at one point I was like, okay, now we're having our eco drama moment. And uh-huh. like yep. it was trying to do all these things and it did some of them okay and it did some of them terrible. But man, the people were all in and the freaking practical effects. It is 1995 and we still got dudes in rubber suits just like falling against styrofoam and making it crash down. And this shit was just ridiculous and lovely. And it made me kind of go, there should be more movies like this that are just made because somebody goes, I want to make something that I love and they freaking do it. And again, I don't know if I'll ever watch it again because I didn't really like it, but I loved every minute of watching this. Well, do you know what the best part is? There's two more, there's two more movies in this trilogy we're going to watch. And this, this I think is the weakest. Oh, I know. I'm psyched for it because they're the same director, right? Yes, they are. They're the same director, yeah, the same writing yeah. staff, and the same, uh, a lot of the same characters. There's all, these are, you know, in the Godzilla movies, there's not a whole lot of continuity between main characters, directors, ways that Godzilla is portrayed, but this trilogy is like tight. This is a story of these three movies, all of them written by the same care by the same people, all of them directed by Shusuke Kaneko. And all of the effects work done by Shinji Higuchi, who is like super famous as a, as an effects guy. Uh, we'll talk about him in a little bit, probably. Um, I think this movie is such a good distillation of like, what can you do with a kaiju movie? Like, what is this is the like apex form for me of what an a kaiju origin movie should be. We've got big monsters. We've got them fighting each other. We've got overwrought dialogue. We've got like 
even to the point of having like the hint of like maybe there'll be some romance but we don't ever see it on screen because that's just not what you do in these daikaiju movies like it's always just like subtext rather than text and you know yeah, i love the i love the uh what is it it's the um he says something to you know the one the, the dude says to the the i don't know the names but whatever he's like you don't need another names like to, yeah sometimes there's something like sometime i'd like to take a walk and show you a tokyo that's not you know being destroyed or something like that i'm like oh that's sweet you guys are watching a turtle and a freaking pterodactyl just tear the shit out of everything and you're having this moment and i love you both when he like tries to go to her house when she's got like the, when he's got like the little watermelon that he's like, oh, yes, he's not at her house. Yes. He's got a watermelon. It's so <laughs> cool. I love it. <laughs> and like, that's how he's characterized through the whole film. Like when he goes to the scientist's house and introduces himself, what does he do? He buys dinner and makes them dinner. And like, he's just like <laughs> gormless. He's just like the sweetest, <laughs> but most gormless it. guy. He's like, dude, and like, I wrote down. Dude's just going in and making dinner unannounced. I'm like, okay, I guess this is a thing. At a guy's house great. he's never met. With her, with the dude's daughter his, there. It's just his, like some yeah, random dude just showing like, up and he's like, I'm just going to make d- dinner for you here. You, you know, you're not here. It's just me and your daughter and I'm making dinner, but it, I am without guile and I'm here because I want you to let me take an unpaid job. Because I'm so guilty about the fact that this plutonium filled ship ran aground on this atoll that I'm like, like one of the first notes I made, and we'll get into all the particulars and I'll, you can do your summary. But one of the, one of the things that fascinates me about this movie, and I expect many of these movies in particular, but it is, it's really cool to watch now. Okay. How do I, I'm going to clarify this. And this is me coming from a place of absolute ignorance. So if I am wrong, if I am saying something stupid, please call me on it. But I look at some of the things and a lot of the things that happened in this movie and I go, you would never do that in an American made movie because from a societal standpoint, that's not the way our society thinks and works. And in some cases for the worse, because the second thing, the second note I took, and again, I'll let you get into the to to the plot summary, but very early on in the sure. movie, we've got these ships, there's a convoy, they're transporting plutonium, and it the the boat with the plutonium potentially runs aground. And they think they don't know why it shouldn't be. There should be, you know, super deep here. What's going on? Oh, it's this atoll, this floating ram, you know, random atoll. And and he's so worried and so so guilty and feels so much responsibility at the fact that he could have released this radioactive plutonium. He did not, but he no. could have. He is so, he feels so much responsibility about this that he's like, I want to come join the insurance company that's going to go and figure out what happened and make sure that we know what's going on because I could have, I did not, but I could have caused major damage. And that was an example where I thought to myself, no one in an American movie would watch that and go, yeah, that makes sense that somebody would feel that much responsibility <laughs> because I don't think we do as no. a culture to any degree I agree with you. that I get the impression that, again, 
not everybody, and I realize I'm making generalizations, but I think that from a cultural standpoint, things like personal responsibility and everything in the very little bits I've seen seem to be a much more significant part of Japanese culture in a way that sadly it is not in ours, that we are so much more of a me, me, me society. And this is a perfect example of someone going, I owe something to society. It don't, doesn't matter that it could be at my expense. This is what I need to do because that is what is good for the group, for the society, for the people, for the country, not so much what is good for me. And that I thought was really cool. And in a lot of ways, you see that coming up in this movie, but never in a way that's like beating you over the head saying, oh, other people should be like this. No, it's just, this is the way, this is just it. You know, this is just how you are. The Mandalorian, this is the way that's just uh-huh. how you are. And it seems weird and foreign to us because we are such an egocentric society in America to our detriment in, in so many different ways. But that was actually like, that was the first thing in this movie that jumped out at me that I thought, this is cool because this is just somebody not even probably thinking about the fact that this would be weird to some, to, to many of us who might be watching this movie, but that that's just, that's what you do. And I loved that. Yeah. That was a rant. Sorry about that. I was excited. No, no, don't, no, don't feel bad about that at all. I love it. Um, yeah, I just, I really like this movie because it just is, I'll do the, I'll do the, um, the summary cause I keep putting it off. Okay. So let's do it. They are, as Peter said, uh, taking a huge thing of plutonium across the Pacific ocean. They even mentioned like, yo, if this gets out, we're going to kill the entire Pacific ocean. Like, what uh-huh. are we, is this really like, what are we doing? This will be, I, they even mentioned this will be like the strength of a hundred Nagasaki's or something like that. Yep. That's what um, it says. And so they get stuck on this atoll and they're like, this is supposed to be 3000 feet deep. Why are we stuck on an atoll? And then the atoll moves. <laughs> and so again, uh, Yoshinari, who is this guy who is one of the Marine officers, freaks out about it and is like, I need to join this, uh, this, um, team of insurance adjusters. Meanwhile, uh, Mayumi Nagamine, who is an ornithologist is taken to this Island where there, where her, her mentor has disappeared and she gets taken by this, you know, goofy police officer to this Island and everyone on the Island is dead and they find this enormous, it was very reminiscent of Jurassic Park, this enormous shit. And within that shit was... <laughs> but they don't ever say that's what it is. But I no, was like, but we all <laughs> when know. that scene happened, I'm looking at it and I just, all I could hear is, isn't it Jeff Goldblum who says something about how that's a huge pile of shit? That's exactly, he says, that's a lot of shit. And that's exactly yep. what's happening here. <laughs> um, and within they find, you know, the professor's, you know, pen that he always takes with him so obviously uh nagamine can tell oh no the professor's dead long story short there are these three birds bird-like they keep calling them birds they're not birds they're pterodactyl they're they're gauss they're weird pterodactyls with like triangle faces um but they take off and are clearly going to another village to try to attack and eat they're able to uh you know prevent that they try to get the government involved. The government's like, okay, we're going to capture these. 
We're not going to kill him. We're going to capture him. So they plan to uh, lure them to a baseball stadium where they will, you know, use helicopters to guide them into the baseball stadium, present them with a ton of, you know, beef, and then shoot them with tranquilizers and put them down. <laughs> Two of the three are uh, and and close the ceiling because of course why wouldn't you close the ceiling? Well, the the reason I'm laughing is because <laughs> this is just me being in. They don't. They say they're going to shoot him with a tranquilizer, but then they say they're using succinylcholine. That's not a tranquilizer. That's a depol- That's a, a paralytic agent. It, well, it doesn't knock them out. It paralyzes them. <laughs> Which I'm like, what six of one, half a dozen of the other. They just want them to stop moving. <laughs> Um, yeah, but they're going to stop breathing if you shoot them with succinylcholine. That's fair. That's fair. Here's <laughs> anyway, the question. Sorry. Here's the question. Do they really say that precise thing in the original uh, script? Or is that a... Who knows? L- or if that's in, some, the, in the sub. Yeah, some subs uh, license taken. Heaven only knows. There's no way to find out. This was pretty poorly subbed in my case. I don't know how yours was. None of the on-screen text was translated at all. Oh, where did you watch it? I have the DVD or I have the Blu-rays that came out on from Mill Creek a few years ago. Uh, so it was at least the first film. Uh, it was free on Amazon Prime. Oh, and well, all of the I busted out my DVD or my Blu-rays. All of the on-screen stuff was translated. It was sometimes hard to read because they would have the the sub on top of the, the Japanese characters and you kind of like look at it. And then if the Japanese characters went away fast uh, or before the sub went away, <laughs> then you could catch it before it went away. But it, it did at least try. Yeah, no, the, the Mill Creek Blu-rays simply don't translate any of that. So like when it shows you like the newspapers that you're clearly supposed to be able to read the, um, like the headlines of like, you know, you do in movies all the time. Uh-huh. I got nothing. I have no <laughs> idea what any of those said. I just saw a whole lot of Japanese and I was oh, like, no, okay. Yeah. It translated all of those. Those were all well, subbed on the that's good uh, to on know. the one on Amazon Prime. That's good to know. Anyway, they capture two of the three uh giant flying creatures. Um but then one of them escapes and lo and behold, oh, first off the insurance adjuster dudes find the atoll. They climb on top of the atoll. There is this wild uh, stone slab that's covered in ruins. And when uh, when Yonamori uh, touches it, he's like, it feels warm. It feels like body temperature. And then it shatters. All of the... Uh, you know, rocks and stuff starts falling off of the atoll. Because it's really a turtle under there, babies. And also, it, I just have to point out, so that we make sure we have said this, turtles are not endothermic. They're cold-blooded. They are no, they're cold-blooded. So really, that part However, was, you know. But this turtle most breathes turtles, fire and has rocket feet and arms. I was going to so, say, you know. most turtles can't turn into jets that fly into space. It's true. So he's probably hot-blooded. <laughs> We'll get there. Um, he comes out uh, from the ocean, starts busting stuff up. One of the gauss flies at him, and he just, like, one-shots it. I love that first scene when Gamma stand- Gamera stands up. One of the gauss flies up to him, and he just goes, smack, and it's done. It's game over for that <laughs> he guy. He just punches it out of the air, and it's just like, thwack. 
Because at this point, gone. the Gauss are only like, what do they say? 15, 15 meters, meters long. Across. And yep. Gamma is like 65, I think was the number that at least yep. in, that, that it threw out. So, so he's, he's quite a bit bigger than they are currently. At this point, yes. Um, he goes to the stadium to kill the other two because clearly he is hunting these things. Um, he does not, he's not able to stop them. They use their amazing, like, I don't even know what you would call that type of power beam laser that they have in their, in their mouths where they can shoot laser breath stuff. Yeah. They have laser breath, but it's like a beam weapon that can like clean cut through everything. So they use that to get out of their cages. They fly away. There's some fighting. They disappear. I think he kills at least one of the other ones. Um, but then he also goes back to the, uh, ocean in the meantime, our gormless hero, Yonamori, goes back to the home of the, you know, the insurance adjuster dude and gives his daughter, Asagi, a um, magatama, which there were magatamas all over the, uh, you know, the the body of Gamera when he was floating in the ocean. It's this amulet that's kind of shaped like a comma. Um, it's traditional Japanese. and They're all over Asia, but the magatama is specifically its name in, in Japan. And so he gives her this Magatama and then it starts glowing and she starts psychically connecting to Gamera. And so, yeah, man, um, she forms this psychic spiritual bond with him. Um, and so, you know, the ornithologist and Yonamori start working together and they're trying to figure all this stuff out. Um, they're nearly killed trying to rescue this kid in this other place where the Gauss are attacking. But Gamera, this is where Gamera kills Gauss number two. They've gotten a bit bigger, um, but they're able to uh, save him, or he's able to save them, but he blocks with his hand their um, the Gauss's uh, laser breath. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, Asagi starts bleeding from that hand. So something's going on there. Um... They get in another fight. Uh, So she is somehow suffering the same wounds and the fatigue that Gamera is feeling because of their spiritual bond. Um, So she starts trying to get to Gamera. He's shot down over Mount Fuji because why wouldn't you put him at the base of Mount Fuji? It makes it so picturesque. Um, But he's shot down at the base of Mount Fuji. All of the... Oh, here's another one of my favorite things that is a like such a cultural difference between American culture and Japanese culture. I loved the part where they were like, oh, well, we can't shoot him until the House of Representatives gives permission for (laughs) us to shoot him because we've never engaged. The Japanese self-defense force has never engaged in military action on Japanese soil. We can't do it now unless the government gives us permission. So just that like that, like insistence on that following that bureaucracy, whereas like, again, in an American version of this movie, they just start shooting. The military mm-hmm. just starts shooting the heck out of Godzilla. We've seen it happen many times in the Godzilla movies. Um, but I do think it's very funny that this kind of emphasizes the bureaucracy and almost to a certain point, the inefficiency of the bureaucracy, which is a very interesting thing that comes up later in Shinji Higuchi's work, who is a guy who worked on this movie, which we'll talk about later. But I have to finish my uh, my... Uh, summary it's taking forever the last gauss <laughs> escapes uh it keeps eating it keeps growing it is now bigger than gamera 
uh, and it they they're able to collect some uh, you know biological data. They find out that the Giaus only have one chromosome, <laughs> and it is a perfect <laughs> chromosome. Yes. There is no wasted data because these are clearly synthetic beings. These are not natural organic beings. These were created by someone. They're genetically engineered. They reproduce asexually. And so they start trying to like speculate on where could these creatures have come from. And ultimately, I think that they they land on it being some sort of ancient civilization, like an Atlantis type thing. Um which, you know, Atlantis is not the only one of those, you know, hyper-advanced ancient civilizations in different cultures across history. But it's the one that, as, you know, Americans were the most familiar with. But something sort of like that. Um, and so they're like, clearly, they created Gauss, and then Gauss was killing everyone. And then they must have created Gamera. And he didn't save them, but he's around to save us now. Which, okay, <laughs> sure. Um <laughs> so the logic follows <laughs> yeah um at this point gamera is really hurt he's like hibernating at the bottom of the ocean asagi is also like basically falling asleep she's injured she's laying in bed she can't seem to recover finally she wakes up after super uh, gauss has grown it's become a super gauss it attacks Tokyo. It destroys Tokyo Tower and builds a nest in its ruins, which is like, I was watching this with my wife last night and she was like, yo, that's a really cool shot. When like the sun is setting over the Gyao oh, yeah. sitting in the ruins of Tokyo Tower. Asagi finally oh, yeah. wakes up and says, Gamera's on his way, babies. Let's go. So they go to where the, you know, the government has been trying to attack Gauss and f- failing. Gamera through the sewers question mark through the subway tunnels question mark who knows comes up from underground and is like fuck you and destroys the nest (laughs) and all of the eggs they start flying oh and again gamera can fly um he can retract his limbs and then just shoot uh jets out of them Sometimes that means that he spins like a top, which is what he does the first time we see him fly in this film. That's well, because um, he retracts he, all of the limbs. Yeah, you get the front and the back, in. so then he's going to yeah. spin. But if he, he just spins. pulls his legs in, then you got no legs, but his arms out and his head's out, so he can still fly and like bust stuff. But he's just got rocket legs. It's very cool. Um, needless to say, a massive battle ensues between Gamera and the Super Gauss. Again, they fly into the into space they leave the atmosphere uh-huh. which causes them to both crater back down to earth um eventually gauss overpowers gamera but asagi uses their spiritual bond to revive him he like eats off he like bites and, off its and leg not just the spiritual bond like at some point she's like holding her dad's hand and it's like he's now helping her help yeah gamera yeah, and so they've, like, crashed into a power station, because why wouldn't you crash into a power station? Makes for some of the best tokusatsu sets, So many explosions. So many explosions. But Gamera absorbs all of the explosions into himself, and right as the Gauss is getting ready to shoot its laser beam, he shoots the biggest fireball he's ever shot right into its face, and it explodes everywhere. Yes, it does. Gamera looks over towards the people nods 
the Asagi says, I can't hear him anymore. I can't feel him anymore. And Gamera disappears into the sea. And that is how the movie ends. And they're like, well, I sure hope there's nothing, no other threats like Gauss that come up. And Asagi's like, oh, he'll be back. He'll, He'll be back. And that is where the movie ends. It is. It's a cool movie. I really like this movie a lot. And we've talked a lot about why it's an interesting movie. Um, Again, this is like the most prototypical version of like a good kaiju movie to me. We've got big action. The suits look great. The fights between the suits are fun. The sets that they destroy are incredible. You know, they're like, they don't have the cheap feel that like older stuff or like less expensive stuff like power rangers always looks pretty bad because they don't have the budget that this had you know so like the suits just look really good the design is really uh you know uh energetic and and fun and the fights feel really kinetic and there's just something to be said i've said many times on this podcast for practical effects when you can tell that these are two physical things in space running into each other and you can feel that in the way that it's captured on film it just has a different feel to it than than a lot of the you know newer stuff where it's all cg you know the new godzilla movies there is not there is no suit in the new legendary godzilla movies which he looks great i love the design of the new godzilla but it's not a dude in a suit and you know it would be more fun if it was a guy in a suit (laughs) So what are some what are some other thoughts that you have about this movie? Other things you liked or other other things you wanted to mention? Oh, man, there's just so many things like it was a little difficult to take notes on because I didn't want to look down too much while I was writing because I got to be looking at the subs so I know what the hell's going on. Um, there were some fun translations uh, and and I'm going to throw this one out there cuz you'll appreciate this since you didn't get this. One of the newspapers flashes across and the translation, the subtitle says, numerous casualties dead. <laughs> <laughs> I love I it. Love I had it. to write it down. I'm like, that's so good. That's amazing. Numerous um, casualties numerous dead. Numerous casualties dead. Um, that is what that normally means, folks. <laughs> you know? Uh, I, I mean, there's things I wrote down. I did. Like early on, I wrote, the. I love the practical effects. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it looked uh, the eyes for the monsters, especially Gauss, but even Gamera, the eyes are goofy as all crap. I mean, they look so, mm-hmm. but, but I, I don't, I don't care because, you know, somebody made that and, and I don't know why that makes me like it more than someone who digitally made something, but it kind of does. And I'm like, they look goofy and they don't ever really look threatening and the way they fly is very, there's a lot of gliding. And then when they do flap, you go, no, that's not. But then there's these other times where like when, oh, when Gauss is like dive bombing and he's like wings are tucked in and he's just like, he and Gamma are like cruising above the town and like really just hauling ass flying over. Oh man, dude, like it looked kind of stupid, but it looked still, I was like, I am totally on board for this. Um, Yeah. What else? I mean, again, I loved the idea 
that all of a sudden it was, I wrote down now it's an eco drama exclamation mark, because at one uh-huh. point when they're talking, you know, the two, the, the main, again, I can't remember the, the names, but the kind of the two main characters, the bird scientist lady, and then the, the military dude who's helping out the insurance folks, you know, they're talking and basically it's like, Ooh, well maybe we, you know, cause they're trying to figure out why, where did these birds come from? Because they find all of these, eggs with dead bird, you know, with dead gauss that looked like they hatched and then like killed each other. Cause there was no food. They were eating each other. And so they're like, Ooh, mm-hmm. well, you know what happened? Why did this happen? Where did they come? Why are they here in Japan? You know, the guys asked, well, like why here in Japan? And she's like, Oh, the plutonium, you know, we created this monster because we're basically this idea that we're messing with things that could mess up the whole world. And now it's going to bite us in the ass. And, like just all these things that are happening that I'm like, this is delightful that you're including all of this. And to me, as someone who doesn't watch these kind of movies, I'm like, this is wacky and goofy as heck in so many different places, but done mm-hmm. with like a sincerity and with a love for sort of the whole genre of films that these are in that I don't care that it was kind of goofy because I'm like these people, everybody here, they're giving it their all because they're like, yeah, this is the story we want to tell. And this is the movie one away we want to make. And I love them for doing it. Yeah. One of the things that I think is so interesting about this movie is the way that I see in this movie and in this trilogy of movies, echoes of things that would come in kaiju cinema that the people who made this movie would go on to make that are some of the best versions of it even if like and granted i think this trilogy is one of the best versions of it i think this is one of if someone were to say to me i want to watch a big monster movie and i've never watched one the movie we watched gamma guardian the universe is one of the three i would give them like i would either give them the 54 godzilla if they wanted an old-fashioned one or i'd give them gamma guardian of the universe if they wanted like the like perfect distillation of the genre and then if they were like i want something a little more modern maybe a little less uh, what you would expect then i'd give them shin godzilla from 2016 um and sure enough shin godzilla was directed by shinji higuchi who was the character designer for these movies, for this trilogy of of uh, Gamera movies. So this uh, is where he kind of cut his teeth on, on live action, because he had been in animation before. Um, he uh, was... He, Shinji Higuchi is a very important person in Japanese media because he's very good friends with Hideaki Anno. Do you know who Hideaki Anno is, the guy who made Neon Genesis Evangelion? I do not. Extremely important you know, creator in Japanese, uh, you know, culture created again, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is one of the like most popular and well-known anime series that has ever existed yet. Um, he, so he created that and it was his studio that made that. And Shinji Higuchi was one of the storyboard artists and screenwriters on Neon Genesis Evangelion. He and Hideaki Anu have been friends for years. And then he left animation to make, the Gamera movies, and then later on, they would work together to make Shin Godzilla because Shin Godzilla is a basically a thing that you know Shinji Higuchi is the director of, um, as well as the the F, the uh, FX director the and uh, it's produced and written by Hideaki Anno. So like these two guys who are the creators of one of the most important 
anime, and then Shinji Higuchi, who would make some of the best effects work, would then go on to make arguably the second best, maybe the best Godzilla movie ever with Shin Godzilla, which is okay. incredible. It's so good and builds on a lot of the things that you see here about like bureaucracy and like the ways that government tries to or is unable to step up in a time of need because of the way that governments are structured, um, which is like one of the main reasons or main like driving plots behind Shin Godzilla. And then Shusuke Kaneko, the guy who directed this series of uh, Gamera movies, also would go on to direct Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All Out Attack, which is a, a mouthful of a title. Like, that is a long movie title, but is one of the most thoughtful Godzilla movies that you'll ever see, even with a ridiculous name like that, because it is um, explicitly dealing with the idea of loss and the idea of how does Japan recover from World War II? Because in that one, you know, most of the time Godzilla's the good guy who fights the bad monsters, just like Gamera did here, right? Sure. Not always. Usually, especially if they're ever introducing a Godzilla, he's usually the bad guy in the first movie. You know, it's, he's not fighting monsters in Godzilla 1954. Like, he is the bad guy, and they're trying to stop him. It's not until the next movie when Anguirus shows up that they're like, oh, no, he's saving us from the other monster. And then that is kind of what happens in each successive era of Godzilla movies. But what makes Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters, All Out Attack interesting is that it is once again a time where Godzilla is the bad guy because he is the reincarnation of the... Um, the spirits of the Japanese who are mad at the way that things have gone since World War II. Hmm. And so then the other monsters have to fight against him. And it is the only movie where King Ghidorah is a good guy and Godzilla is a bad guy because King Ghidorah is like the most prototypical bad guy, like bad monster in the Godzilla movies. But in this, he is one of the protector guardian monsters that try to protect uh, Japan from Godzilla, who is this force of nature imbued with the spirit of, of um, you know, the destruction and the, the souls of those who were killed in the Pacific War and is mad about Japan's denial of its past crimes. So, like, again, this movie doesn't deal with any of that kind of stuff. This is a much more lighter movie. It's a much more, you know, uh, goofy movie. But I think you see the nucleus of some of these things here that will be developed in films two and three, which do get a little more serious and a little darker than this first movie did. Um, and then again, okay. we'll go on with the this director to go on and make you know one of my favorite Godzilla movies in 2001, and then the other guy, Shinji Higuchi, to make also one of my other favorites with Shin Godzilla. So I think it's really interesting to see that here, working on this, this, you know, has... Second run has been less interesting character because Gamera has never had the cultural, you know, staying power that Godzilla does. But sure. they were able to take it and really build a very fun and interesting story, and will continue to do so over the course of the next two films. Yeah, no, like I say, it, it was. It's not something that I see myself going back to without some particular reason. Uh, but sure. I did. I, I enjoyed it completely. Uh, it was a blast to watch. 
Well, I am glad to hear that, and I am very excited for next episode, where we will be watching Gamera 2, Attack of Legion, which is the second in this trilogy, which came out in 1996. You will see some, like I said, some recurring characters who were in that first movie you'll be seeing again, um, and it really ties into where things were left off at the start or at the end of this one. One thing that I think is really interesting about 2 and 3 in this trilogy the opponent suits get much more interesting because oh, okay. the Gauss, like the Gauss looks kind of cool, but like Gauss is Gamera's most famous enemy from the old, uh, the old, um, Showa era films. Uh-huh. So he just kind of looks goofy. Like Gauss is a goofy looking bad guy. Uh huh. And like they do what they can to modernize the look, but he still just looks like he has an anvil for a head. Yeah. And, like, he just kind of looks goofy. But, like, I'm very curious to see how you feel about Legion, who is the the main opponent monster, the Mother Legion, from uh, from the next film. Because the suit work really off the charts. Off the charts. The design just goes really wild. Well, I look forward to watching them. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, if you haven't seen these movies, apparently they're on Amazon Prime. So go watch them. It's I think fun. all three of this trilogy is, uh, I was looking on just watch, uh, but I know again, for sure the first one was. And, uh, so yeah, it was, uh, it's out there. It's easy to watch and it's, I mean, it's just fun. Like it goes down smooth. It goes down smooth and you should know kind of what you're getting into. And as long as I think, you know, sort of what to expect when you start this, I think anyone who watches it is just going to. It's just going to have a good time and you're going to laugh at some points and you're going to roll your eyes at others and you're going to like go, wow, that was sweet at some other parts. And when it's all said and done, there are so many worse ways you could spend 90 minutes of your time. And also it was a pretty tight 90 minutes. Yeah, man. I, there's something to be said for a short movie and all of these are pretty short. They're all less than a hundred minutes. I think. Yeah, no, it was, it was fun. And, and I appreciate you, uh, uh, first of all, again, helping me out and, and giving us a, a, an idea for a, a few sessions here. Uh, but most of all, it was fun because these are the kind of things like I remember absolutely loving the old Godzilla movies when I was very, very young. Mm-hmm. But I very much, for whatever reason, kind of moved away from that and have not watched anything and so this was a fun way to kind of get me back into that and go, all right, yeah, there's, there are reasons these movies persist. You know, yeah. there, well, there are and- lots of reasons that these types of movies continue to be made and continue to find an audience. And like, obviously I really like them. I was talking at the beginning of the podcast about how I literally have Gamera's name emblazoned across the flesh of my arm. So like, obviously I think that these movies are pretty fun. It's actually, it's funny. I know exactly which posters, each of the, like, uh, you know, like the typography of the different names that I have. And so the typography for Gamera is actually from the poster for Gamera three, um, which we'll be watching in, in a couple of episodes. Um, so I really think that these are really great movies and I really enjoy them. And like, I, I'm not under any illusions that like, obviously I don't think that Kaiju cinema is, you know, great cinema. It's not like, you know, the sort of stuff that, but, but that doesn't mean that there's not something worth talking about. And that is, I Absolutely. think 
what I think is most interesting about kaiju films, like I have often joked with my partner that sometimes I want to go back and get a second PhD. I would never do this. This is this is hell. <laughs> this is hell. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm but glad I sometimes know. joke that if I were to go back and get a second PhD, I would want to get it in cinema studies and I would want to write my dissertation on affect theory in Daikaiju cinema. So using affect theory explicitly to look at these films. And this would be one of those movies that I would talk, I'd probably have a whole chapter about this trilogy of movies and the way that affect theory helps us understand what's going on here and like why why things work out the way that they do and why characters do the things that they do. And so again, I'm this, this is not the before trilogy, which is one of the greatest movie trilogies ever made, but there's something to be said for being able to sit back and enjoy it, but also be thinking about stuff afterwards and be like, that was really dumb and really silly, but it sure was cool. How like he built a psychic connection with that girl. And then they saved the planet. <laughs> <laughs> it was cool. It was great. It was very cool. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Uh, and we'll be back in two weeks talking about Gamera 2 Attack of Legion, which is a very cool movie. I'm very excited to talk about it. Um, if you have any questions for us, you can reach out to us at feedback at the middle of culture.com. And always you can leave us a review or please go leave five stars on your podcast platform of choice. Um, and with that, I will wrap up for this week. Thank you all for listening. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone.